is a place where they'll pay you a thousand dollars for a kiss and fifty cents for your soul. Welcome to Holly Weird, a podcast about celebrity deaths and the strange events in Tinseltown and beyond. We are your hosts, Megan Carpenter and Liz Shire. Here are today's headlines. This time around, we're doing something a little different. We here at Holly Weird Productions love all things pop culture. Our podcast covers celebrity deaths and strange events that have usually occurred sometime in the past. We want to make sure that our listeners get our hot take on the more recent pop culture events and celeb gossip in a new segment that we're calling Getting Down to Show Business. In this episode, Megan Liz riff on the ever-divisive pop superstar Taylor Swift. It's a good song. It's the best song on the album. The best song on the album. Getaway Car. I changed my mind. Or New Year's Day. New Year's Day. Um, I hate the chorus. Of New Year's Day? Yeah. It drags. Okay. I mean, I feel like it's, um, it's structured weird. The song itself is structured weird because you, like, open, like, with the... Yeah. Like, pre-chorus. Yeah. So, um, but I like that one. Getaway Car and Delicate are my three favorites on that album. Delicate's awesome. I I really like um. This um I had a couple on my workout playlist. Ready for it? I actually really. This like body is my it. end game. <laughs> <laughs> on your workout list. Not that one. I hate Gorgeous. Yeah, I don't really. Like That's that not a good either. chorus, and I don't like um. Dress. Is okay. Uh, yeah. I do really like New Year's Day. I actually like this is why we can't have nice things. It's okay. I like. I, I don't like. Bad. I don't like petulant Taylor, and when that manifests <laughs> in songs, I don't like them. Can you just elaborate a little more, petulant Taylor? Like woman, you are going to be a thirty this year, <laughs> and I don't like when she like sidebar like disc conversations on tracks with her friends i can't even say it with a straight face like shut the fuck up (laughs) i don't know i don't like that stuff i don't like so i mean that's the part of this is why we can't have nice things that i don't like i do like other parts of that song petulant taylor yeah when she's just like whiny (coughs) well that's another thing no one wants to hear taylor swift whine ever she's so um revenge motivated yeah it's not a good look that's why i'm saying like i'm i i I would never want to like be her friend (laughs) (laughs) you just be afraid that if i i would unknowingly cross her yeah and then my life would be over 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 she and kanye are perfect for each other pretty much two revenge focused narcissists yeah will take down anybody yeah and they'll side with anyone do you think so how calculated taylor swift is is a symptom of her narcissism or her narcissism is a symptom of how calculated she is um oh 
That's a very interesting question. Because I feel like there are people who are narcissists who can be flighty narcissists. Like, I feel like... Mm-hmm. I feel like... Well, there are people who are narcissists where it's not sinister. Mm-hmm. And I feel like her... Her... Her narcissism is a symptom of her calculation. Mm-hmm. Because it almost seems sinister sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think the way that I look at that is if... Because she's so... All of that calculation comes from a place of wanting to self-preserve. And that, to me, is a narcissistic tendency. Ah. Like, it's about saving her... That's true. ...reputation. Yeah. No matter what. No matter what it costs. And it's really about her money, too. All the promotional stuff, like Diet Coke, Target, that's all about the money. She doesn't need any more money. Right. I don't know, it's just, so she's on the cover of L.U.K., did you see that? And she, instead of being interviewed, she wrote them an essay. <laughs> because she didn't want to deal with a journalist. That that was the re- she didn't want to be interviewed, and that was the reason she wrote an essay. Well, she didn't do, she hasn't done interviews in like two years. She didn't start doing them until Reputation came out. But she didn't do them for two years. Right, because everyone was sick of her. Right. But, I mean, L.U.K. wanted to interview her. Right. And she said, no, here's an essay. What a narcissist. Yeah. Oh, her boyfriend was at the Oscars with um, mm-hmm. Nicholas Holt. Okay. And they Joe Allen. And they were like, Joe, what did you do for your birthday? And it was definitely like a Taylor Swift fishing question and you're like oh you know we went out to eat and you know went to dinner and uh you know uh yeah it was fun they're like who'd you go with like, <laughs> friends <laughs> like okay they're like say something right but then she was at the vanity fair party yes yeah i mean i'll rip her every time but then i will always listen oh, to delicate yes. yeah oh yes mm-hmm. the ultimate hater like she on like she just doesn't seem like a real person. Yeah. Oh, there was there was a comedian. I don't remember her name. The commercial came on after um, I watched Ali Wong stand up, Baby Cobra, and she was like, "I love Taylor Swift, but I know that if I ran up to her and was like, Taylor, Taylor, I love you so much,' she'd be like, ew, get away from me! I'm already friends with one human woman.' <laughs> so. Ugh, God. Disingenuous. That's what she seems like. Yes. Disingenuous. That's why people are making fun of her for when, remember when she would win awards and she'd be like, oh my God, me? Yes. Me? Taylor like, Swift's surprise face. Taylor. Mm-hmm. I did feel bad for her about the sexual harassment thing, though. Yeah. Part of me wonders if she got sick of herself and that's why we didn't hear from her for two years or if she, again, was calculated and was like, okay, let's turn this around i think it's calculated i don't think she has that kind of self-awareness no it's almost like she's like overly she's she's (laughs) that's why she's overly self-aware yeah i watched a behind the scenes thing of like the reputation tour because i actually think it looks great they had the giant blow up snake did you watch it on netflix was it on netflix it's on netflix the reputation tour like the concert, the show is on Netflix. I watched some of that. Okay, but it was on. Watch it. It was on YouTube, and it was like a behind the songs, which I kind of like. 
and I showed like all these behind the scenes things of her being really funny. Mm-hmm. And it was like, <laughs> did you like cut out the parts where you're screaming at your staff and like fucking throwing phones at people? Like, cause I, it was just so like, oh my God, she's so funny and so normal. So, yeah. And you're also an executive producer. Yeah. <laughs> so like, do you think that, that, that is inevitable because of the level of superstardom she is at? Of her just being calculated and disingenuous. Yeah, well, at this point, she's backed herself into a corner because she's never going to be. Saying. Yeah, yeah. Like she has to be this way for the rest of her life unless she gives it up. Right. Like a Britney situation. <gasps> Audible gas. <gasps> yeah, because I just think like, but I think of other people like Bad Gal Riri and like, but I guess they are not quite at Taylor Swift level. Yeah, but people like Adele. Like, I feel like Adele is not calculated like that. No, and she actually said, it went, what was the last album? Um, 25? Yeah. And she said, I'll never do, I'll never do perfume commercial, I'll never do, you know, anything like that. People who do that just do it for the money. I'll never do that. And it's like, yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. That's why she's never done anything, and that's why she's, like, quit music. I miss her. I know. Did you ever, sometimes, when I feel sad, God, I talk about that all the time, I watch the carpool karaoke that she's on. Yes. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. So good. When she and James Corden sing, Make You Feel My Love. Oh, gosh, it's so heartwarming. <laughs> okay, should we start? Yep. It's an episode of Hollyweird you won't want to miss. Misery awaits. This is the story of the death of Elliot Smith. October 21st, 2003, Echo Park, California. Musician Elliot Smith and his girlfriend, Jennifer Chiba, were embroiled in an argument in their home. Chiba locked herself in the bathroom to take a shower. Upon hearing screams from Smith, Chiba opened the bathroom door to see Smith standing with a knife in his chest. Panicked, Chiba pulled the knife out from his chest and he collapsed. A call to 911 followed. Elliot Smith died in the hospital. He was 34 years old. A post-it note was found in the home. It read, I'm so sorry. Love, Elliot. God forgive me. All signs pointed to suicide, but the official autopsy report left open the question of homicide. In cases of suicide where cutting is involved, there are typically hesitation wounds. None were found on Smith. Despite previous struggles with drug abuse, no traces of illegal drugs or alcohol were found in Smith's system. However, there were prescription levels of antidepressants and ADHD medications. Shortly after Smith's death, a fan memorial was initiated outside Solutions Audio on Sunset Boulevard in L.A., the location where the cover for Smith's album Figure Eight was shot. Fans left messages and flowers as well as photos, candles, and empty bottles of alcohol, as mentioned in Smith's song lyrics. Memorial concerts were held in several cities in the United States and the United Kingdom. A memorial plaque was hung in Smith's former high school, Lincoln High, located in Portland, Oregon, in July 2006. The plaque contains the line, 
I'm never going to know you now, but I'm going to love you anyhow. From Smith's song, Waltz Number 2. Never gonna know you now, but I'm gonna love you Less than a year after Smith's death, on July 30th, 2004, his girlfriend Jennifer Chiba filed a lawsuit against the Smith family for 15% of his earnings, which equated to over $1 million. She claimed that she and Smith lived as husband and wife, and that the singer pledged to take care of her financially for the rest of her life. She also claimed to have been serving as his agent and manager. A state labor commissioner ruled her claim as manager to be invalid, as she had worked as a quote-unquote unlicensed talent agent under California's Talent Agencies Act. The case made it to the California Appellate Court in October 2007, but was defeated 2-1. to one. In an October 2013 Spin magazine article, a reflection at the 10-year anniversary of Smith's death, Drummer Scott McPherson stated that Smith was, quote, a sick man without his medicine during the last 31 days of his life, when he was not only sober, but had also given up red meat and sugar. Insert Whole30 joke right here. In the same article, Chiba recalls thinking, okay, you're asking a lot of yourself. You're giving up a lot at once. Chiba further explained that, Anyone who understands drug abuse knows that you use drugs to hide from your past or sedate yourself from strong, overwhelming feelings. So when you're newly clean and coming off the medications that have been masking all those feelings, that's when you feel the most vulnerable. Posthumously, Smith's album, From a Basement on the Hill, was released on October 19, 2004. With Smith's family in control of his estate, the album was released on a 15-track single album. Some thought Smith intended on releasing a double album, but there may not have been enough material recorded to do so. There has been unconfirmed speculation that Smith's family made the decision to not include some songs on the record due to their lyrical content, although songs such as King's Crossing that deal with darker subjects did make the album. Elliot Smith and the Big Nothing, a biography by Benjamin Nugent, was rushed to publication and hit stores shortly after From a Basement on the Hill barely beyond the first anniversary of the musician's death. His family declined to be a part of the biography. In 2005, a tribute album, A Tribute to Elliot Smith, was released. It featured various bands performing tributes to Smith. On May 8, 2007, a posthumous two-disc compilation album entitled New Moon was released. The album contained 24 songs recorded by Smith between 1994 and 1997 during his tenure with the label Kill Rock Stars, songs that were not included on the albums, as well as a few early versions and previously released B-sides. In the United States, the album debuted at number 24 on the Billboard 200, selling about 24,000 copies in its first week. The record received favorable reviews and was Metacritic's 15th best-reviewed album of 2007. Following the singer's death, the Smith estate licensed his songs for use in a number of film and television projects, such as One Tree Hill, The Girl Next Door, Georgia Rule, and Paranoid Park. On July 17, 2015, a documentary about Smith's life entitled Heaven Adores You saw a limited theatrical release. 
The documentary included a number of close friends and family members, as well as hours of audio interviews throughout Smith's short career. Elliot Smith was born Stephen Paul Smith in Omaha, Nebraska on August 6, 1969. He was the only child of Gary Smith and Bunny K. Berryman. His parents divorced when he was six months old and Smith moved with his mother to Duncanville, Texas. Smith later had a tattoo of a map of Texas drawn on his upper arm and said, quote, I didn't get it because I like Texas, kind of the opposite. But I won't forget about it, although I'm tempted to, because I don't like it there. Wowza. A masochistic preview of what was to come. Smith endured a difficult childhood and a troubled relationship with his stepfather, Charlie Welch. Smith stated he may have been sexually abused by Welch at a young age, an allegation which Welch has denied. He wrote about this part of his life in Some Song. The name Charlie also appears in songs Flowers for Charlie and No Confidence Man. In a 2004 interview, Jennifer Chiba, Smith's partner at the time of his death, said that Smith's difficult childhood was partly why he needed to sedate himself with drugs as an adult. Quote, he was remembering traumatic things from his childhood, parts of things, it's not my place to say what. Smith began playing piano at age 9, and at 10 began learning guitar on a small acoustic guitar bought for him by his father. At this age, he composed an original piano piece called Fantasy, which won him a prize at an arts festival. Many of the people on his mother's side of the family were non-professional musicians, his mom was even a music teacher. At age 14, Smith left his mother's home in Texas and moved to Portland, Oregon to live with his father, who was then working as a psychiatrist. It was around this time that Smith began using drugs, including alcohol, with friends. After graduation, Smith began calling himself Elliot, saying that he thought Steve sounded too much like a jock name and that Steven sounded too bookish. Biographer S.R. Shutt speculates that the name was either inspired by Elliot Avenue, a street that Smith had lived on in Portland, or was suggested by his then-girlfriend. Smith graduated from Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts in 1991 with a degree in philosophy and political science. On completing a four-year degree, he explained in 2003, quote, I guess it proved to myself that I could do something I really didn't want to for four years, except I did like what I was studying. At the time, it seemed like this is your one and only chance to go to college and you had just better do it because someday you might wish that you did. Plus, the whole reason I applied in the first place was because of my girlfriend and I had gotten accepted already even though we had broken up before the first day. While at Hampshire, Smith formed the band Heat Miser with classmate Neil Gust. After Smith graduated from Hampshire, the band added drummer Tony Lash and bassist Brant Peterson and began performing around Portland in 1992. The group released albums Dead Air in 93 and Cop and Speeder as well as the Yellow No. 5 EP both in 94 on Frontier Records. They were then signed to Virgin Records to release what became their final album, Mike City Sons, in 1996. 
Around this time, Smith and Gust worked a number of odd jobs around Portland, including installing drywall, spreading gravel, transplanting bamboo trees, and painting the roof of a warehouse with heat reflective paint. Smith had begun his solo career while still in Heatmiser, and the success of his first two releases created distance and tension with his band. Heatmiser disbanded prior to the release of Mike City Suns, prompting Virgin to pull the album out inauspiciously through its independent arm, Caroline Records. A clause in Heatmiser's record contract with Virgin meant that Smith was still bound to it as an individual. The contract was later bought out by DreamWorks prior to the recording of his fourth album, XL. His first release, 1994's Roman Candle, came out about when Smith's girlfriend at the time convinced him to send a tape of, quote, the most recent eight songs that he'd recorded to Cavity Search Records. Regarding the record, Smith said, quote, I thought my head would be chopped off immediately when it came out because at the time, it was so opposite to the grunge thing that was popular. The thing is... That album was really well received, which was a total shock, and it immediately eclipsed Heatmiser, unfortunately. Smith felt his solo songs were not representative of the music Heatmiser was making. One of his first solo performances was on September 17, 1994. Only three songs from Roman Candle were performed, with the majority of the ten song set being B-sides, Heatmiser tunes, and unreleased tracks. Soon after this performance, Smith was asked to open for Mary Lou Lord on a week-long U.S. tour. She later recorded one of his songs, I Figured You Out, which he had discarded for sounding, quote, too much like the Eagles. In 1995, Smith's self-titled album was released. The record featured a style of recording similar to Roman Candle, but with hints of growth and experimentation. Several songs made reference to drugs, but Smith explained that he used the theme of drugs as a vehicle for conveying dependence, rather than the songs being about drugs specifically. Looking back, Smith felt that the album's pervasive mood gave him a reputation for being a really dark, depressed person, and he said that he later made a conscious move toward more diverse moods in his music. A third album, Either Or, came out in 97 to favorable reviews. By this time, Smith's already heavy drinking was being compounded with his use of antidepressants. At the end of the Either Or tour, some of his close friends staged an intervention in Chicago, but it proved ineffective. Shortly after, he relocated from Portland to Brooklyn, New York. In 1997, Smith was selected by director and fellow Portland resident Gus Van Sant to be a part of the soundtrack to his film, Goodwill Hunting. Do you like apples? Yeah. Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? <laughs> Smith recorded an orchestral version of Between the Bars with composer Danny Elfman for the movie. Smith also contributed a new song, Miss Misery, and three previously released tracks, No Name Number Three, Angelus, and Say Yes. Sean, if the professor calls about that job, just tell him, sorry. I had to go see about a girl. Will. Son of a bitch. He stole my life. 
The film was a commercial and critical success, and Smith was nominated for an Academy Award for Miss Misery. Not eager to step into the limelight, he agreed to perform the song at the ceremony only after the producers informed him that if he was unwilling to perform, they would choose someone else to play it. On March 5, 1998, Smith made his network television debut on Late Night with Conan O'Brien performing Miss Misery solo on an acoustic guitar. A few days later, wearing a white suit, he played an abridged version of the song at the Oscars, accompanied by the house orchestra. James Horner and Will Jennings won the award that night for best song with My Heart Will Go On from Titanic. In 1998, after the success of Either Or and Miss Misery, Smith signed to a bigger record label, DreamWorks Records. Around the same time, he fell into depression, speaking openly of considering suicide, and on at least one occasion made a serious attempt at ending his own life. While in North Carolina, he became severely intoxicated and ran off a cliff. He landed on a tree which badly impaled him but broke his fall. When questioned about his suicide attempt, he told an interviewer, quote, Yeah, I jumped off a cliff, but let's talk about something else. Smith's album EXO, the first release for DreamWorks, was later that year. It became the best-selling release of his career. On October 17, 1998, Smith appeared on Saturday Night Live and performed Waltz Number no. 2. Smith relocated from Brooklyn to L.A. in 1999. In the fall, his cover of The Beatles' Because was featured in the end credits of DreamWorks' Oscar-winning drama American Beauty and also appeared on the soundtrack for the film. The final album that Smith completed in his lifetime, Figure Eight, was released on April 18, 2000. Album art and promotional pictures from the period showed him looking cleaned up and put together. However, his condition began to deteriorate as he had become addicted to heroin either towards the end or just after the Figure Eight tour. Around the time he began recording his final album, Smith began to display signs of paranoia, often believing that a white van followed him wherever he went. He would have friends drop him off for recording sessions almost a mile away from the studio, and to reach the location he would trudge through hundreds of yards of brush and cliffs. He started telling people that DreamWorks was out to get him. During this period, Smith hardly ate, subsisting primarily on ice cream. Admittedly, same here. He would go without sleeping for days and then sleep for an entire day. Recording another album was stopped in 2001 by producer John Bryan due to Smith's drug abuse. The DreamWorks label scheduled a meeting with Smith to discuss what went wrong with the recording sessions, but the discussion led nowhere, and soon after, Smith sent a message to the executives stating that if they did not release him from his contract, he would take his own life. In May 2001, Smith set out to re-record the album mostly on his own, but with some help from David McConnell of Golden Boy. 
McConnell told Spin Magazine that during this time, Smith would smoke over $1,500 of heroin and crack per day, would often talk about suicide, and on numerous occasions tried to give himself an overdose. Smith's song, Needle in the Hay, was included in Wes Anderson's 2001 dark comedy film, The Royal Tenenbaums, during a suicide attempt scene. He's gonna walk, 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 four more blocks, plus the one in my brain. Down, downstairs, to the man, he's gonna make it all okay. I can't be myself, I can't be myself, and I don't wanna talk. I'm taking the cure, so I can be quiet. Wherever I want, so leave me alone. You ought to be proud that I'm getting good marks. You'll in the hay. You'll in the hay. You'll in the hay. You'll in the hay. Smith was originally supposed to contribute a cover of the Beatles' Hey Jude for the film, but when he failed to do so in time, Anderson had to use an orchestral version of the track instead. Anderson would later say that Smith was in a bad state at the time. Smith's live performances during 2001-2002 to gave a cause for alarm. A review of a December 2001 show in Portland expressed concern over his appearance and performance. His hair was uncharacteristically greasy and long. His face was bearded and gaunt, and during his songs he exhibited alarming signs of memory loss and butterfingers. At another performance in San Francisco that month, the audience began shouting out lyrics when Smith could not remember them. In May 2002, Smith co-headlined Northwestern University's A&O Ball with Wilco. On stage, he claimed that his poor performance was due to his left hand having fallen asleep. His performance was reviewed as, quote, undoubtedly one of the worst performances ever by a musician and, quote, an excruciating nightmare. A reporter for the online magazine Glorious Noise wrote, quote, it would not surprise me at all if Elliot Smith ends up dead within a year. Ugh, don't you hate when shit predictions like this play out, a la Amy Winehouse. On November 25th, 2002, Smith was involved in a brawl with the LAPD at a Beck and Flaming Lip show. He later said he was defending a man he thought the police were harassing. The officers allegedly beat and arrested him and girlfriend Jennifer Chiba, and the two spent the night in jail. Elliot had attempted to go to rehab several times, but found that he was unable to relate to the popular treatments for addicts that used a 12-step program basis for treatment. In 2002, he went to the Neurotransmitter Restoration Center in Beverly Hills to start a course of treatment for his drug addiction. In one of his final interviews, he spoke about the center, saying, quote, What they do is an IV treatment where they put a needle in your arm and you're on a drip bag, but the only thing that's in the drip bag is amino acids and saline solution. I was coming off a lot of psych meds and other things, I was even on an antipsychotic, although I'm not psychotic. After his 34th birthday on August 6, 2003, he gave up alcohol, caffeine, red meat, refined sugar, and his longtime, but sometimes abused, regimen of psychiatric medication. With things improving for Smith, after several troubled years, he began experiencing with noise music. 
His final show was in Salt Lake City on September 19th, 2003, and the final song he played live was Long 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 by The Beatles. It's time for Hollyweird Post-Mortem. Why is Elliot Smith and his death so intriguing? Is his tragedy the result of a lifelong struggle with mental illness or something more sinister? Here's our best guess. Liz. Yes. Elliot Smith came to us by way of request. Yes. So one of our, I was going to say fans, that sounds so stupid. (laughs) One of our listeners. Long time listeners. (laughs) One of our listeners um, asked that we do an Elliot Smith episode, which um, here you are. (laughs) So I personally did not know anything about Elliot Smith before this request came in. Did you? I knew some. Um, I, I do like a couple of his songs and I, but I was mainly so intrigued by his death. Yeah, yeah, he's probably more, would you say he's more remembered for his death than he is his music and, like, contributions to music of that time as a whole? Um, I think if you were around to appreciate him as a fan, you probably remember him more for his music, but for anybody who might be a little younger, interested in pop culture, it's definitely his death. That's fair, so it's probably a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, But in doing research, I was like, how did I not know who this person was? Honestly, Meg, how did you not know? I don't know. You like music. I know. I don't I we know. We were talking before know. about people who want to insist, like, oh my god, I love music. Music is my life. It's like, no one doesn't fucking like music. <laughs> everyone likes music. Literally, Congratulations. Everyone likes music. <laughs> so many people cited him as an influence or post his passing um, developed and released songs that were either about him or mm-hmm. in tribute to him. And some of those names are Pearl Jam, Third Eye Blind, Ben Folds, Pete Yorn. Like, people who... Mm-hmm. And they're, they're just a handful. Mm-hmm. So, like, people who are very popular, um, he meant a lot to them. Mm-hmm. So, I thought that that was really interesting. And, and since his passing, which is over 15 years now... Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Shit. Um, Isn't it weird to think that people born in 2000 are 19? Yes. And not like four? Yes. So my sidebar, my husband, for his job, um, he does hiring. Mm. So uh, he gets resumes. And the place that he works, um, they have like a lot of teens. It's like their after school job Mm -hmm. uh, or weekend job. So he, people who are old enough to be working for him now are born in like he told me he a resume came across his desk that they were born in or an application came across his desk and they were born in 2002 no <laughs> i know I'm so old i know <laughs> like excuse me also since his passing several tribute albums have been released uh christopher o'reilly's home to oblivion and elliot smith tribute is a highlight amongst those mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking at his discography. Okay, I pulled up the right tab on my laptop because I also have Taylor Swift discography open. (laughs) Right tab. Um, so like retail singles is a portion of his discography here. And I'm seeing one in 
2012, 2013, 2014, 2017. So, like, he's... Mm -hmm. People are still republishing, reissuing, Mm -hmm. putting out new music on his behalf. Um, So, I mean, he... I would say he's still totally relevant. And honestly, like, shame on me for not knowing about this. I mean, I don't want to shame you, but, you know. (laughs) All right, whatever. Thanks for your support. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) In learning about him... I think that he became popular and became popular with a style of music that was not the norm for the time in which he became popular. So mm-hmm. his first album came out in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, that was Roman Candle. And think 1994, I mean, we're talking Nirvana, mm-hmm. uh, grunge, mm-hmm. um, Pearl Jam. Like, think of all the stuff that was really popular. Um in music in that time and he brought something probably totally different Mm -hmm. to it um and was very successful in doing so Mm -hmm. i mean that's super commendable Mm -hmm. i will say there's something a little unmelodic about his music that might go with the grunge yeah like first wave kind of stuff right so that's a really good point. So while it was not what was popular, I could see how what was popular was a step to his music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like a launching pad, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, or even like a sister genre. Sister genre, if you will. <laughs> so before I get like any hate mail either about, I don't know, how could you not know who Elliot Smith was? I'm learning. That's part of the point of this. <laughs> Um, but also in learning, uh, we learned about genres mm-hmm. of music. Um, lo-fi and indie were probably his classified genres. Yes. Liz, do you want to tell us about those a little bit more? Um, so indies, you know, comes from when people would put out music on an independent label, one that wasn't, or just on their own, one that wasn't affiliated with a big record company that has lots of, um suggestions and rules and essentially it's all about marketing and how much you can sell so indie is stereotypically non-mainstream it doesn't sound like things that you would normally hear on the radio and that can be a wide range of stuff so that's one of his categories and then he's also lo-fi which is um according to wikipedia an aesthetic of recorded music in which the sound quality is lower than the usual contemporary standards the opposite of high fidelity so there's lots of imperfections in the production and do we think that these styles of music gained prominence around the time in which he was popular? Like, was he a driving force in popularizing these styles? Yes, I think for the time period, I mean, definitely since he has so much prominence still to this day, it was probably a big push for the genre, but it did originate in the 50s with um, the Beach Boys. And there's lots of other iterations of it. So apparently lo-fi, since lo-fi and grunge were, I guess, popularized at the same time, it was that a lot of people in um, music viewed grunge as the sellout genre. So for those who know Elliot because of his music, Mm -hmm. let's continue on that thread. What is the most effective use of a depressing Elliot Smith song? Oh, definitely Needle in the Hay in the Royal Tenenbaums. I'll never not think about which 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 Wilson brother tried to kill himself in that movie? Luke. I'll never forget that scene, even though I couldn't remember which Wilson brother it was. Wait, are they both in that movie? Are they? 
No, it's just Luke. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, am I not remembering this? But Owen in real life actually did have a suicide attempt. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So that's like oh ironic. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to Google that later. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. But I, that's definitely the scene for me. Yeah. Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Is like plagued with Elliot Smith. <laughs> He's all over it. I know. And like, I mean, it's a Boston movie where the Dropkick Murphy's not available. <laughs> Could they not get the rights? <laughs> so I guess, who was the director? Was it Gus Van Sant? Yes. Okay. He lo- that's He was an Elliot Smith fan. So Gus Van Sant, huge Elliot Smith fan, and got his songs, um... Songs that were featured on albums already mm-hmm. and new material, i.e. Miss Misery, mm-hmm. onto this soundtrack. And that resulted in a lot of exposure for Elliot, a lot of success for Elliot, um, by way of ultimately an Oscar nomination mm-hmm. for Best Original Song for Miss Misery. Um, trivia time! <laughs> Do you know who... He lost the Oscar too. Um, 1998. I I know because I read it in Wikipedia. Oh come on, listeners! It's Celine Dion's "My Heart Will Go On." <laughs> Every night in my dreams. <laughs> Which um okay, like I'm not mad at that. Well, that was there was no bigger song. No. Yes, that was very shallow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so. He, in tradition, um, at the Oscar ceremonies, he performed his nominated song. Mm-hmm. Um, and for any of you who are Oscar heads, you know that the nominated songs get performed. Um, they're kind of dispersed between the cere- the length of the ceremony. Awkwardly. Um, <laughs> um, now, he did perform... But he originally was not going to. And mm-hmm. then Oscar producers said, okay, you cannot perform, but we will get someone to sing your song. To which he said, I'll do it. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean. Do you know what his reasons were for not wanting to perform to mainstream? So, yes, the Oscar producers said that his song would be performed whether he was the one performing it or not. Um, and that was what he said was the one and only reason he ended up performing. He didn't want anyone else to do it. Um, But why didn't he want to do it in the first place? So of his initial reaction to being offered the gig, he said, quote, yeah, at first I thought, I don't think that's a good idea. He didn't really say why. I mean, probably just not his scene, right? I guess so. Because he said then, too, there was that whole quote about it was nice to live in their world for a day. For a night, but he wouldn't want to live there permanently. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, he said he called it surreal. So it probably, yes. Oh, here is the quote that I just butchered. Here we go. <laughs> so he said, quote, I enjoy performing almost as much as I enjoy making up songs in the first place. But the Oscars was a very strange show where the set was only one song cut down to less than two minutes. And the audience was a lot of people who didn't come to hear me play. I wouldn't want to live in that world, but it was fun to walk around on the moon for a day. I guess I see where he's coming from. 
Yes, but ultimately, I feel like it's an honor. Yeah. And, and it was a song that he wrote for the movie, so it's not like he had written the song about something else. Yeah. Like, I always think about that when they use, like, classic songs to sell, like, cars or vacuums or whatever. It's like, that's not why they wrote the song. But he did write the song for the movie. Right. You played in their world, and you were really good at it. Right. And now you're being honored for it, and you're gonna tiptoe. Right. And also, no one's gonna heckle you at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> Free bird! <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I get it, but also, also, and I think that that's something, like the whole sellout concept, um, I think has died away with social media and yes, the saturated market, which I talk about every single episode, Right, but it's true, like we, they're never, I was listening to um, last podcast on the left talk about the Michael Jackson documentary and just how big of a star he is and was. And that you really can't achieve that anymore just because there's so much out there and there's mm-hmm. so many ways to do it. And I feel like that, the concept of selling out is gone now. Like, people will do, people will sell flat tummy tea on Instagram. Yeah. Because you cannot reach that level of exposure anymore. Right. Yeah, I am so tempted, but I am not going to initiate the conversation with you of whether he would be a star today because of... Uh, let's do it. So, <laughs> so do you think that he would still exist in the capacity in which he existed when so many, so many singers, songwriters are required almost to have a social media presence today? I don't think he would do it, and I think he would still maintain a limited fan base and be and be fine living in that world. Yeah, I don't think he would play the game. Right. But I do think that he would continue to make music, and it's a shame because he probably could have made some really cool stuff. Yeah. All right. So, ultimately, um, we think that for some of our audience, Elliot Smith is intriguing because um, kind of a genre pioneer for his time. Mm -hmm. Um, So talented in terms of like he really teetered on that mainstream like with this oscar nomination Mm -hmm. like he was kind of like just kind of hovering around that mainstream level Mm -hmm. um yeah and just just fans of his his music ultimately Mm -hmm. on the other side of the coin (laughs) some of our listeners probably know elliot smith or are interested in elliot smith uh because of his death Okay, so his death was decided to be a suicide. Mm -hmm. But there are many, many, a many conspiracy theories out there that he was actually murdered. Mm -hmm. How did you best know Elliot Smith because of his death? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when I was researching and learning about Elliot Smith, I was stunned by the amount of material that was out there. In online, in terms of retrospective articles by music magazines, by news outlets. Um, Reddit is just infinitely long with uh, conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, there was a lot more out there than some other people who were way more mainstream mm-hmm. that we've covered in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. So that. Um, Uh, That shocked me, but also intrigued me. So I guess I probably fall into subcategory number two. (laughs) Um, But ultimately, 
did he commit suicide or was he murdered, presumably, allegedly, by Jennifer Chiba, his girlfriend? Right. I mean, are you asking me? Not yet. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, we know that Elliot had a difficult childhood. Mm -hmm. His parents divorced when he was only a baby. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And he lived with his mom, who got remarried to his stepfather, and there were rumors that he may have been sexually abused by his stepfather. Mm -hmm. So there is that trauma, if it were true. Mm -hmm. He, as a teenager, went to live with his father, so I would presume that there's also a little bit of upheaval in living with one parent's in in Mm -hmm. a semi-stable situation to then living with another parent Mm -hmm. like just that whole dynamic of of changing homes in Mm -hmm. a very pivotal at a very pivotal age Mm -hmm. um we know that he suffered from depression Mm -hmm. um that he struggled with depression and we know that ultimately he abused drugs and alcohol Mm mm-hmm so, if we want to go down the suicide pathway, I would say that he's been through some things that would, that could lead one to suicide. Yes. Would you agree? Yes, it, that definitely makes logical sense. Um, he may have had suicidal tendencies. Or ideations. Ideations. Yes, that's better vocabulary. Let me, well, it's a yes. term. Let me just thinking about it. So... Well, I don't necessarily mean that. So okay. let's dive into that. Oh, I know everything. Let me tell. Let me correct Megan about psych terms. Oh wait, she's wrong. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, Sorry, friend. Um, this if this were suicide, this may not have been the first try. Mm-hmm. So he some recalled seeing a scar on his rib cage, um, and where his stab wounds were located were at. In his ribcage area, like, between ribs. Mm-hmm. So, like, the knife. Like, you go to stab someone. Sorry for this crassness, but, like, Jason style. <laughs> and you are holding the knife, like, in a fist. Mm-hmm. Like, in a fist. Mm-hmm. So, it's like... An, <laughs> you, the look on Liz's face is uh, really uh, weird right now. I'm trying not to laugh. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the way the knife was stabbed into him... It was turned, the blade was turned sideways so it could, like, slide between ribs. Can you picture that? Yeah, if you were stabbing yourself. Right. So, when, if I, like, when I think of, like, stabbing yourself, I think of, like, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. And, like, every way that I've ever seen that is it's, like, they're holding the knife, like, in two fists and they're, like, plunging it Mm -hmm. into their chest. Mm -hmm. So, how, like, I'm just trying to, like, envision how... He would have had to hold that knife to get the blade slid sideways between ribs. But anyway, regardless, he had scars Mm -hmm. on his rib cage, like on his chest of where he may have tried to do this before. Mm -hmm. So that's just kind of a hmm. Definitely a hmm. Um, He... Used to, I would say, I guess, leave breadcrumbs with friends about um, this kind of thing. So when he moved from Portland to Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. he told friends, this is probably, like, at his goodbye, this is probably going to be the last time you'll see me because I'm probably going to kill myself. So 
if if you were to say that, I would assume that you're walking down that path, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He told other friends um, in New York City that he used to spend his nights walking subway tracks. That's a dangerous game to play. Definitely. If you don't have intentions. Right. And then there was also a story I read that he was in, I think, North Carolina. Yes, he was in North Carolina. He was drunk, which we knew he had a drinking problem. He jumped off a cliff and impaled himself on a tree branch. What the fuck? Yeah, so I'm saying, like, th- this behavior, so it's not just ideations. Like, he has a, tr- he has tried. Yeah. And he's played with fire, so to say, many times. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if we, and we will, and we will go down the, was it suicide or was it murder? <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of argument here to be made for suicide. Yeah. By that, yeah, sigh from Liz. You can tell which camp she's on. I, I honestly, I really feel split. Um, you're misinterpreting my sigh. But <laughs> I guess the only thing is, is that it's such a violent way to die. Yes. So I, you know, the number one way that individuals in the U.S. kill themselves, the term is died by suicide. You're not supposed to say commit, but sometimes it's hard to not say commit. Die by suicide is with a firearm and it's 50%. The other 25 is hanging yourself, and then the other, like, 20-ish is substance overdose, and then there's, like, a category of other stuff that's, like, in the less than 10% of unusual ways that people kill themselves. This is an unusual way. Right. So, when I looked up those numbers as well, specifically for, like, um, sharp force trauma, Mm. uh, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It was like a percentage of a percentage, hmm. and most of that percentage of a percentage is like, um, like slitting wrists or something like that. Right. Like, like stabbing yourself. Right. The numbers are minuscule. Yeah. So if we're looking at those statistics alone, that would lead me to lean murder, except for these unexplained scars on his rib cage. Right. Because if he's tried this before, now let's let's dive in a little bit further. Um, during an autopsy, it was noted that there were no hesitation wounds. So, Ooh, what's a hesitation wound? A hesitation wound means you, let's talk slitting your wrists. Okay. You might have like cuts on your wrist that um, are not as deep as the one that has like that killed you mm-hmm. because you, you like, I'm doing this, but then you, you stop, you get afraid or mm-hmm. it hurts or whatever. Yeah. So, those are called. These are wounds that came first to the one that came prior to the one that actually killed. That makes sense. And they're called hesitation wounds. Mm -hmm. So there were no hesitation wounds. He was stabbed. There were two stab wounds, but neither were a hesitation wound. Like they were both like deep and um, intentional. Yeah. Can a hesitation wound happen if someone is trying to commit homicide? I mean, probably. It, It makes sense that. You might not know how. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but I, so I guess what I'm trying to get at is there were two stab wounds in his chest. The second wound was five to seven inches deep. You would think if you were stabbing yourself in the chest, you wouldn't know like how to. Yeah. And it would be Mm. sloppy. Oh. 
I see where you're getting at. Yeah. So, um, so I feel like his death and the manner with the stabbing lends to both arguments. So if we're mm-hmm. talking the suicide route, he's already had he had noted scars on his rib cage, mm-hmm. meaning. This may not have been his first attempt at suicide by this exact same method. Yes. So if you want to argue suicide, I have laid you the groundwork. Mm-hmm. If you want to argue murder, we can do that too. Because while he was stabbed in the chest twice, there were no noted hesitation wounds. Mm-hmm during his autopsy, Mm -hmm. which, think about it, if you are going to try and commit suicide by either stabbing yourself somewhere, slitting your wrists, like, I don't feel like you'd go at it 100 right away. Yeah. You might, like, not be as deep, or, like, you would, ah, do I really want to do this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Um, And there was none of that. Mm -hmm. So why would there be none of that? Because someone stabbed him in the chest. So, Uh if you want to argue murder, I have laid the groundwork for that as well. And that's also why it's so, it's so hotly debated. Mm -hmm. Because, and there are probably, and that's probably why there are a trillion subreddits about this. Because there's a valid argument for either. Yeah. So, and that's just, and that is just talking off the manner in which he died alone, not mm-hmm. even the circumstances surrounding his death. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about um, threats of suicide in the past. Mm-hmm. So we we covered about how he told friends, I might commit suicide, you won't see me again. Um, we talked about the time he ran off the cliff. We, talk about, we talked about his tendencies to walk along subway tracks. The very day of his death, he allegedly threatened suicide. To Jennifer, his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, he had apparently threatened it before, um, as we've stated. But could she have been making that up if she was a murderer? Mm-hmm. Courtney Love, your homegirl, <laughs> called this the best suicide she ever heard of. That's tacky, Courtney. It is tacky, especially considering her intimate relation to a suicide. Yeah. Still your homegirl? I just had to throw that out there. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, all right. Let's do this now. Let's talk about who was Jennifer Chiba. Okay. Jennifer was his girlfriend, also an indie musician, most notably of the band Happy Ending. Okay. She was Rivers Cuomo's on-again, off-again girlfriend. Rivers from Weezer. Um, they dated for like three years in the early 90s, and the song, Weezer song, All Think About You, was written about her, presumably. That is interesting. hmm She was also, is also, a licensed marriage and family therapist. Wow. Dun, dun, dun. That was very, very surprising to me. So, for those of you who have not been following our personal stories intimately um liz is in school to become a licensed family and marriage therapist yes so my question for you liz in your training are you required to take any type of like medical training like cpr anything like that and the reason i ask is because 
Jennifer pulled the knife out of Elliot's chest no. when, when she opened the bathroom door and saw him presumably standing there screaming. So I am not any type of clinician. <laughs> And I know that when someone is impaled or stabbed or what have you, you do not remove the object. Right. Every, I watched a whole season of 911. What do they say? Every (laughs) single episode. Don't take it out. Don't touch it. So in part of your training though, like, is that, does it, no. So no. So we can't blame that. I've learned CPR. I knew CPR before, but they did train us on how to administer Narcan. Oh, okay. But Narcan wasn't even a thing when he died. So and then what about, are you trained at all about how to handle someone who is on the brink of suicide? Yes. So do you think that she reacted appropriately? I mean, I guess they were fighting and she locked herself in the bathroom. I've heard she locked herself in the bathroom to get away from him. I've heard she locked herself in the bathroom because she was going to take a shower. So, um, and then... And then she was in the bathroom and heard him screaming and this had already occurred. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I mean, I guess that's plausible. But if he was threatening, I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to kill myself, did she do the right thing in walking away? Uh, ooh, that's a really tough one. For, first of all, I can say that for training, you know, there's a reason why you're not supposed to counsel people that you know or that you're friends with because... Uh, there's a lot of your judgment is blurred and you wouldn't make the same decisions for someone that you cared about personally that you would for a client. So you do get trained to handle situations that happen in session with your clients, but in your personal life, I think it'd be a lot different. So whether or not she handled it correctly, I can't really say what I would do in that situation. Yeah. And also there's a chance that since he had been depressed for a long time and had attempted before told friends he was going to, to attempt or try it if he had been saying that maybe that was just kind of another day in the life of their relationship that's true and we know that he was clean at this time he had gone through um, rehab he had gone through different types of treatment to help kick his addictions and his autopsy found that only prescribed levels of medications were in his system Hmm. so um he by all accounts was clean allegedly she also suffered from drug from drug abuse and was not clean at this time that is what i've read Hmm. so um i mean who knows who knows There's so many, there's so many factors. Also, not to get super forensic files, but was there any kind of anything suspicious in the home when they went there that would indicate that there was like a struggle or a fight or... His autopsy also found small lacerations on both his hands and under his right arm, which were described as possible defensive wounds. Can you describe? Yes! (laughs) I know. I guess I'm just, there was a suicide note. Um, It was on a post-it. It said, I'm so sorry. Love, Elliot. God, forgive me. I mean. (sighs) Wasn't his name misspelled in the suicide note? His name was, so this, I can clear this up because this has been a point of contention in conspiracy theorists, with conspiracy theorists for a while. Mm -hmm. Um. 
it was when the coroner's report transcribed in the report what the suicide note said it spelled his name wrong okay but it was not spelled wrong on the post-it itself okay 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 (laughs) so how many subreddits need to be shut down (laughs) because it's like guys Um, because that is very i mean if yeah that's very that's another strange element yeah there's so much i mean there's just so much that we could really like harp on like if if some if he had if he was clean and by all accounts got his life together Mm -hmm. what would drive him to the point of suicide that he was just still depressed and unhappy and didn't want to live yeah that can happen even if you're taking your medication Yes. Okay. So again, I guess in our, what what camp does that argument fall under? It could fall under both. Like, <laughs> ugh. Um, Jennifer Chiba sued his estate in the year after his passing. Mm-hmm. Um, she argued that she was working as his manager. Um, that he had made a commitment to her to take care of her. Um, and she was asking for 15% of his estate, which was about a million dollars. Um, she was denied and I mean, it went like real high up, like through state, state court levels. Like, Mm -hmm. um, I guess she appealed and whatnot. Um, but I mean, that's why I think some people go straight away to hating on her. Because she tried to get money after he passed. But I feel like anyone could money grab and also not be a murderer. Right. So I feel like that's an argument that some people use and I don't feel is a valid one. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's a lot of different factors. Yeah. So what the scenario in which he is hypothetically murdered Mm -hmm. is that there was a fight? Yeah. Yeah, that they were arguing or fighting or whatever. Whether, like I said, he was clean, she was not. Was that a part of it? Mm-hmm. Um, could they just be one of those couples who fight? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> fight with knives. Yeah, but like what What took it there? Uh, I guess I'm just like stunned though that this was like pretty open and shut suicide. Yes. But if it was noted... Well, A, if the manner in which suicide was completed was a percentage of a percentage of the statistics, Mm -hmm. and the coroner's report and autopsy noted possible defensive wounds, why wouldn't you look into that? Did anybody ever contest that that it wasn't suicide? What did his family say? I, I, I don't know. I think... I think I, I think we would have discovered if his family made a statement other than suicide. Mm-hmm. Many times in all of the crime shows that I've watched, when a death to, is declared a suicide, family members will fight it regardless. I think partially because of the stigma, and partially because no one really wants to admit that someone close to them right would kill themselves, and you wouldn't be able to see the signs. But also, like life insurance, probably. I don't know if he had life insurance, but a lot of times those policies are nulled if someone commits suicide. Oh. I would think a lot of times that would that would be reason for argument. I didn't even think about that. Um, let's go through an article from a website called Rock NYC 
and it's five reasons five reasons (laughs) (laughs) five reasons why elliot smith elliot smith's death is probably not a suicide oh shit Mm, shall we (laughs) one the method we actually cover that pretty well this is saying um, most stabbing deaths are homicides Sharp force injuries account for less than 2% of all suicides. And like I said, of that 2%, most of them involve, um, like, cutting. Number two, the circumstances of the death. Elliot and his girlfriend were arguing on the day of his death. Um, They'd been fighting all morning long, and neighbors heard a violent fight, including slamming doors and screaming. She said she locked herself in the bathroom because she wanted to isolate herself, um, and she was used to Elliot's melodramatic threats saying he wanted to kill himself etc etc so um yeah i mean i guess if you threaten it on a regular basis its impact is lessened yeah but what a psychological mind fuck that is to be with somebody who says that to you on the regular that's true that's true so uh number three is the forensics of the wounds um which i guess we already talked about this a little bit also um most suicides by stabbing are a single wound. So we talked about the fact that there were two. Right. The thorax is the most targeted region for homicide victims. In the case of suicide, self-inflicted cut wounds are usually found to the neck or wrists. Um, the direction of the stabbing is also used as an indication. In Elliot's case, both stabs were slightly downward. Jason style. Yeah. How could you come at yourself on a downward trajectory? I would think it'd be upward, if anything. Yeah. Like, yeah, like a, a straight perpendicular or an upward. Listeners, we're trying it on ourselves. <laughs> yeah. If you could see us, we're just like pounding fists into our chests at yeah. the moment. <laughs> the stabbing occurred through his clothing. So I don't know that that makes an argument anyway. That's just a fact that's listed in here. Um... Item number four on the argument for murder, lack of hesitation wounds and the possible defense wounds. I feel like we talked about that Mm -hmm. um, pretty well. And the removal of the knife. So despite the fact that she has a master's degree in therapy and has 15 years of experience by this point of working um, for mental health organizations... She removed the knife from the wound when she saw him still standing. Maybe she just panicked. Like yeah. I said, even that's why even if you're a trained medical clinician or a nurse or an EMT, you're not supposed to ever do anything to your loved ones because it really does cloud your judgment. Yeah, I mean, we all say that we would do A, B, and C, but when you're in the moment, yeah. who really knows? Yeah. Gosh, this thing is split right down the middle. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... What do you think, Liz? Like, which camp are you on? I feel more confused than ever. (laughs) I think, because I think I thought suicide, like, at face value before I really read into this, before we started discussing it, and now I don't know. See, I really felt like she killed him, but now, now I'm leaning more towards suicide because it was just so implausible on the surface, but now the more facts I think maybe, you know, when somebody does kill themselves, it does not come without a long, usually a long train of attempts, talking about it, ideation, tendencies, all kinds of things, and it was all there for him. Mm-hmm. And really, if you think about if she had been vying for part of his estate and saying that, you know, she wanted, 
he intended to take care of her, then what motive would she have to kill him? Yeah, exactly. If he was, if he was supplying her with money and the basics for living, mm-hmm. like why cut off your meal ticket? Unless it was a crime of passion, and you're not thinking about those things yeah. in the moment. And if she was abusing, right? She's not thinking clearly, right? Oh, I don't know. I really don't know either. This is awful. It's awful either way, but it is. I will say the curious thing is how quickly it was ruled a suicide. That there was there wasn't even like a a question. I wonder if it had been maybe it was because of his fame that they didn't question it. Maybe there was some kind of influence that family members didn't want them to dig into it or something. But that's such an unusual manner of death for a suicide, as we have said many times before. So it's just very unusual that it was automatically. Yeah. Now, like I'm looking at Reddit right now and there's like a thread right here that's brand new as of six months ago. Like it's still people still want to know. Yeah. Wow. It is truly a mystery. Even though there is it, so there's an answer out there legally, medically, you know, supposedly there's an answer, but there's still so many questions. So we've hit a lot of points. We've hit points that contradict each other. Mm-hmm. Our research has contradicted other elements of our research. Um, hopefully we didn't get tangled too much in conversation, but I feel like, I mean, in the eyes of the law, this is a closed case. Mm-hmm. But do you feel like in the eyes of pop culture or Reddit, to throw that out there, <laughs> this will remain open forever? Like, has this has this reached almost, like, mythical, like, yeah. urban legendy type of levels? I think at this point, yes. There's just, I mean, in our research, there is so much information that's out there that People have different camps. Some people are right in the middle, and it's still being talked about to this day. And people are still kind of coming up with new theories and new ideas and new, even new information. Maybe it'll always be like this. Wow. But it's honestly, it's that's why it's so, I don't want to use the word legendary, but that's why it's so... Prevalent? Yeah, or just people still talk about it because yeah. it is so, it's truly a mystery. It really Ooh. is. A genuine pop culture mystery. Pop culture mystery. Megan Liz on the case. <laughs> pop culture mystery. We're on the case and we didn't do it. We didn't solve it. But sometimes we, life isn't about finding the answers. It's about the journey. And we had good discussion. It's about how you get there. Mm-hmm. So um, if you want to let us know what you think, reach out um, hollywoodpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. If you or someone you care about are struggling with thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-237-8255. It's time to shout out some sources who aided in the research of this episode. Justice for Elliot Smith is a blog that dives in deep to some theories surrounding his death, and The Guardian had some really great articles about his music and life. Want to let us know what you think about Elliot Smith this podcast or let us know which celebrity death you can't get over 
Email your feedback to hollyweirdpodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at hollyweirdpodcast to get clues about future episodes and photos that go along with the stories. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hollyweird. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please join us next time when we dive into the murder of a Tejano music queen. Until then, we'll be dreaming of you. This is more than it. My reputation's never been more so. He must like me for me. Me, 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 me. It's two T's. We can't make it. <laughs> Anybody in love can we, babe? You can make